Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The penny has finally dropped about the benefits of micro-investing, and it could help millennials save more for the future. Can cash really beat shares? Moneybox presenter Paul Lewis claims it can. We check out his theory. And the fat dividends being paid by the struggling oil majors. Is this a risk or an income opportunity? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. Young people in the UK have so many pressures on their budgets that finding some spare cash to put away for the future is a big challenge. But new micro-investing apps mean that more millennials could be nudged into making a start. I'm joined in the FT studio by Amy Williams, reporter on FT Money, who's been investigating. Amy, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Claire. Firstly, tell us, what is micro-investing and how might it work? Micro-investing is where you take bits of spare change and you invest it in a fund. So it's a bit like the digital version of a money box where you'd save up your two peas and eventually you'd have a couple of pounds to spend on something bigger. Uh, The way it would work is... You go and buy a coffee and we'll say it costs pound eighty. That would be quite cheap coffee in London, I admit, but we'll pretend it costs that much. Um, you pay with your debit card, which is connected to a micro-investing app. Okay. The app then asks you, would you like to round up this coffee to £2? So adding 20 pence on and then putting that into a fund for you without you even noticing that you spent the money. Okay, so... My grandmother used to say, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. But it's quite hard to buy 20 pence worth of shares in a company or fund. Is that what's currently preventing people from investing such small amounts? Yes, definitely. The asset managers have economies of scale to think about. And it's very difficult for them to do anything without minimum investment on your part. And 20 pence is clearly far below what they'll currently take. But they're starting to realise that this is a great way to encourage people who aren't interested in saving or investing into saving and investing. So they've all put their heads together and looked into ways that they can perhaps buy fractions of shares in funds that currently have to you have to buy whole shares in, so that's that's more expensive. Excellent. And we've still got the problem of fees. Now, at the moment, if I go onto an investment platform, buy shares um, in a company, I'm going to get charged a trading fee. So if I make lots of small transactions, the fees and charges are going to rack up. How will they get around that one? Well, there is the problem of that. Some of the micro-investing apps that are now being developed have come up with a fixed rate that they say will encourage you to invest more. So Moneybox, for example, which is a UK app, are going to charge you £1 a month as a fixed rate, regardless of how often you trade. Whether that will work for them remains to be seen, but they think that will cover all the transaction costs for them. Different apps will have different strategies for this. But in the main, how can the asset management industry use apps like this to get millennials to embrace investing? 
very big asset managers like BlackRock, who's the world's biggest asset manager, and Vanguard, the US asset manager who specialises in low-cost funds, are really interested in the idea of being able to sell customers bits of funds because they know that it's the only way they're going to get young people who don't have much money to invest. They can't go about selling things for a high price and expecting people who don't have much money to be able to afford to buy them. Thanks very much there to Amy Williams, FT Money reporter. You can read FT Money's cover feature, Microinvesting, Why Small is Beautiful, this weekend as part of the Weekend FT or online from Friday at ft.com money. With the threat of Brexit causing mayhem on the stock markets this week, many investors may be running for the safety of cash. Well, Paul Lewis has no need to dash for the exit ahead of a Brexit. A long-term advocate of cash savings, his FT Money column this week outlines his active cash strategy, which he claims would have outperformed the FTSE 100 for much of the past 20-year period. He joins me now on the line. Welcome to The Money Show, Paul. Thanks, Claire. Firstly, tell us what active cash means. Well, it's quite simple. You look at the best buy one-year savings account, which may be with any of the banks or building societies, and then you put your money in that. A year later, when it matures, you take your money and the interest out, and you look for the current best buy, and you put your money in that. So it's a small matter, maybe 20 minutes once a year, and you always have your cash earning as much as it possibly can. Now, you've got all of the historic data for the past 20 years on the Best Buy savings accounts from Moneyfax. Had to travel down to Norwich to delve into their archives to do so. But over the past 20 years, you would have expected, perhaps, for the FTSE 100 tracker investment to have performed better than cash because it's drummed into investors that over time shares always beat cash. Yes, it is. And the reason I went to Moneyfax and got this Best Buy data is because when you look at the various surveys that have been done, some better known than others, they make two mistakes. The first is they don't use a real investment. They use an index figure, which is the index of how shares grow. They add on the dividends that you get and then they reinvest that. It's what's called a total return index. But none of them that I've come across anyway really look at what the real return is after charges. And as you know, that can be 1%, 2% of your money in some cases. So they overstate shares and they understate cash because instead of looking at best buys, which no one has ever done before, they look at either treasury bills, which are an obscure sort of investment that's supposed to be much the same return as cash, or they use a single deposit account. One of the most famous studies, for example, uses the nationwide postal account, which returns 0.25% at the moment. So that is not comparable to the 1.5% or more that you can get on Best Buy Cash. So over the past 20 years of your analysis, what are the results? Well, I looked mainly at a five-year investment. So you take your money, you put it in, and then five years later, you see how much you've made. And looking at that, if you just picked a random date between January 1995 and January last year, you would have found that active cash did better than a FTSE 100 tracker, which just tracks the stock market in most cases, 57% of the time, you would have made more money with your cash than you would 
with a FTSE 100 tracker. And the other important thing to realise is that with a tracker, sometimes, guess what, the value of shares goes down as well as up. And in about a quarter of the times that you picked a tracker, you would actually have lost money. You can't lose money with cash. You may not get much back nowadays, but you never lose it. So those are the two key facts, that cash won in the majority of times and cash never went down, unlike shares. Over a longer period, how did that affect your calculations? Well, what I really started this research to see was where the boundary between short and long term is, because if you talk to any good financial advisor, they will say, and indeed they've been saying since my FT Money article came out this morning, that they agree with cash for the short term, but not for the long term. So where's the boundary? And I expected it to be around 10 years, which is a lot longer than most advisors would say, but around 10 years. In fact, to my surprise, it turned out to be more like 18, 19 or 20 years. Only at that really long term do you find that shares consistently outperform Best Buy cash. And even on 14 years, for example, investments 14 years long, cash won almost all the time, 96% of the time. So you've really got to have a very long term perspective to be sure that shares will win. Now, asset managers have, as you say, have responded very respectfully to your research this morning. They, they point out that an actively managed fund may have done better than a tracker and the poor outlook for interest rates going forward may be a problem for this active cash strategy in the future. So what do you say to that, Paul? Well, it may or it may not. I mean, looking at the evidence, the last 21 years actually hasn't been unusual. If you look right back 115 years, which the longest study looks at, it's been pretty much the same. But I would also say this, if a manager says to you, I can do better than cash, and offers you a fund or a balanced portfolio, ask them this, can you guarantee that I will make more money from this than if I put my money in active cash, in well-managed cash? And the answer will always be no. Well, thanks very much there. That was Paul Lewis, freelance journalist and presenter of Moneybox on Radio 4. You can read his column online now at ft.com money. Finally, away from the threat of Brexit, the oil price is another obsession for private investors who are eyeing the large dividend yields on the oil majors with considerable interest. I'm joined in the FT studio by Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity International, who has examined this phenomenon in her FT Money column this week. Micah, welcome to The Money Show. Thanks, Claire. So the oil majors, BP and Shell, Britain's most important dividend payers, but the collapse in the oil price has brought the sustainability of these payments into question. Just how exposed would UK investors be if either of them did install a dividend cut? Well, UK investors are a lot more exposed than they might think. So quarter after quarter, we see BP and Shell rank among the FTSE 100's top dividend-paying stocks. Now, let's just take Shell as a case in point. Following its acquisition of BG earlier this year, it immediately paid a dividend. And that means over the course of this year, Shell will now pay $10.4 billion in dividends. That's a third more than it paid last year and £1.4 billion more than the sum of both Shell and BG's combined payments. Now, the good news is that this goes a long way in offsetting the dividend cuts you remember I warned about earlier this year, in which we've seen from a lot of the blue chip miners, from Rolls-Royce, from Standard Chartered and Morrisons. The downside is that it means UK income seekers are increasingly dependent on the oil major. 
This year alone, Shell will account for £1 in every £7.50 of UK dividends. Now, the last time we saw a similar scenario was back in 2009. All the banks, who were the main dividend payers back then, cut their dividends BP emerged as the biggest dividend payer. It was paying one pound in every six pounds of dividends. Mm-hmm. And then we had that black swan event, the oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, and BP was forced to cut its dividends. So it is something to be conscious of. So considering that many UK equity income funds will hold exposure to BP and Shell, what's the view of professional investors on the oil majors? It's very interesting because I've spoken to a few managers. Now, the first thing to note is that these companies are very proud of their dividend heritage. Oh, yes. Shell hasn't cut its dividends since the Second World War. Now, BP doesn't have such a long track record, but prior to the Gulf of Mexico disaster, the company did enjoy an enviable enviable history of uninterrupted dividends. Um, Let's take Neil Woodford, who's arguably the best-known UK equity income fund manager. He is completely steering clear of the sector, given the question mark over dividend sustainability. Another well-known income investor is Michael Clark of Fidelity. And the wider oil and gas sector is one of the largest underweights in his funds. But then you have managers at the other end of the debate, like Alistair Gunn, who manages the equity proportion of a number of Jupiter multi-asset funds. Now, he believes oil could see a rerun of the mid-1990s when we saw the oil price fall all the way back down to $10 a barrel and investors thought, well, this is the collapse of the sector. Actually, what followed was five years of outperformance and oil company dividends went from unsustainable and very vulnerable to a cut to likely to grow. Now, if the price of oil doesn't rise... Do you think these companies' dividends are sustainable? Well, Claire, the short answer is probably not. As it stands, the oil majors' dividends aren't being covered by their cash flows. They're paying their dividends out of increased borrowings and asset disposals. Now, that is very worrying. And it's unlikely to change in the coming months unless the oil price increases. But the key thing to remember is, one, both BP and Shell are pulling out all the stops to maintain their dividend. We heard from Shell last week. While it's rolled the dice with this BG acquisition and some investors have accused it of empire building, the company takes a great pride in that unbroken dividend record and it's announced plans to thrive in a lower forever oil price environment. Likewise, BP did a lot of cost cutting after the Gulf of Mexico disaster, leaving it with a better quality business and it's bringing its costs down to live in a world of oil between 50 and 55 dollars a barrel. The other key point I'd make is there's a big difference between oil and the mining sector and that is that Mm. oil enjoys an elasticity of demand and with the oil price coming down we see people one spending more time in their cars both in the U.S. which is the biggest user of oil as the U.S. driving season kicks off but also in emerging markets and commodity markets aren't complicated beasts. It's all about supply and demand. So I think we're unlikely to see a world where oil prices pass the $100 mark again, but the bullish view is that the oil price could keep rising to around $70, $75 a barrel in three years' time. Now that is a marked appreciation and it's one that could see the sector's dividends actually go from unsustainable and likely and, and vulnerable to a cut all the way back to likely to grow. Well, thanks very much. That was Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity International. You can read her full column now at ft.com money. 
We'd love to know what you think about the oil price, micro-investing or money matters more generally. You can get in touch with us via email, our address, money at ft.com or tweet us at ftmoney and leave comments on the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this weekend's issue. We weigh up a rocky week on the stock markets ahead of a potential Brexit and Merrin Somerset Webb will be giving us her views on what investors should do next. Plus, we have the latest share tips and director's deals from the Investors Chronicle. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.